0: Before we fully go into the sports blitz today, there's something I want to talk about. This Saturday, if you're listening to this at the point of publication tomorrow, actually, it will be the 10-year anniversary of the passing of Gary Speed. I didn't really watch Gary Speed much as a player, as somebody who started following football in 2006, but I knew what he meant to Leeds and I knew what he meant to the wider footballing world as a whole. And obviously... I had heard a lot of testimony as to what he was like as a person and how really kind he was and willing to listen to everyone and remember everything that everyone had said to him and that he was just a really kind human being and so when we found out that he had passed away 10 years ago this Saturday it was one of the most devastating heartbreaking blows that I can remember and if you look back at The reaction from the wider footballing world on the day and in the days following then you'll realise just how well loved he was by so many people. I was at one of the Leeds games straight afterwards and the amount of chanting that there was for Gary Speed was phenomenal. It's no secret that Gary Speed took his own life and we'll never really know why he took his own life. He had been on Football Focus that day, the people had been talking to him... Hadn't noticed anything, there wasn't really any reason to be suspicious. And the prevailing sort of thought, though, of course, nobody can ever really know, and to say otherwise would be disrespectful, but the prevailing thought has been that Gary, in his final hours, thought there was something that he couldn't get out of that he felt trapped about, and that he had not told anyone about. And so the reason I'm putting this here. And the reason I feel like it's so important to bring it up isn't just because Gary Speed was a legend who deserves being remembered. But also to remind people that if you do feel like you're struggling and you feel like there's no way out of a problem, you need to talk to someone about it. People will want to listen to you. People will want to help you. It's really important to remember that, and the 10-year anniversary of the tragic passing of Gary Speed at 42 is a reminder of how important it is to speak. Hello and welcome to the Sports Blitz today as we go through another week in the world of sports. I was about to say, as we go into week 12 of the NFL season, but that's a different podcast, that's a different intro, but I kind of wanted to get this back up and running again. I know my main focus has been on the NFL Blitz and that's where it will continue to be, but I I miss just talking into a microphone. I, I enjoy it. Don't ask me why. Because the answer is I genuinely have no idea, but I I get some enjoyment out of this for some reason, and so I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep randomly talking about sports, and so that's what this episode is obviously going to be about. Anyway, welcome to the show today. I hope you're doing well. I hope this podcast finds you in good health as per usual. Remember to go to anchor.fm forward slash the sports blitz to find out where you can play this podcast. You can also just play it there. And remember to go to the Sports Blitz website for writing about the world of sports, including a recent article about Union Berlin's win against Hertha in the Derby, which we'll be talking about later. And, of course, power rankings keep going up every week. They've sort of been the main sort of article going up recently because they're very easy to do, and I, I want to do them every week. Now, unless my calculations are wrong, this is a good time to point out that this is the 50th episode of the Sports Blitz and that feels weird and the main reason I wanted to bring it up because, well, I not know, 50 podcasts isn't like a big deal. There are many, many podcasts that are on thousands of episodes at this point. It's a big deal for me, I guess, but for the most part, most people are going to hear that and go, eh. But the reason I sort of find it really interesting is that the first episode went up in February 2020, the day after Super Bowl 54. And at the point that first episode went up, the world was so completely different. Bearing in mind, that was one month before the COVID-19 pandemic really truly hit and lockdown and isolation started and it was just so weird looking back at how different the world was when that first episode of the sports blitz aired and bearing in mind there also wasn't a website which has become the main focus of the sports blitz since because it's got over 300 articles on there's only 50 episodes of the podcast but just how different the world was just how different my opinions on many things were as well. I think I've I've changed quite a lot during these last 18 months or so that we've been doing the sports blitz. And there are stories that I covered back then that I wouldn't cover now, and things I cover now that I wouldn't really thought about covering back then. And I know that's weird considering the majority of this episode is going to be about football, which maybe is the one constant in my life, but also not really because I was a very different type of football fan when we recorded that first episode all that time ago in February 2020. And it was just really interesting to reflect on how different the world is, how different this podcast is, how different the website is, while the website didn't exist, but how different all of my life and this podcast and the website is now, Fifty episodes into the podcast, it was just—it was really strange for me, and yeah, I wanted to point that out. So happy fiftieth to us! There've been way more episodes of the NFL Blitz, weirdly enough. Uh, so you know, it's not—it's not, a, it's not a massively monumental mark anymore. There's a lot I want to talk about in this episode. A lot that I've—I've I've missed from the past few weeks, and a lot that I Have wanted to cover and just haven't been able to, and so we're gonna be doing a lot of that. The main focus later on will be on football results, kind of like from the older "Beautiful Game" podcast that we did for a bit that has since been essentially scrapped because nobody wants to do it. But that's gonna be the main focus of this episode. But there are two other stories that I want to go into that I haven't been able to cover yet, and I've kept promising to myself I will cover them. And I, then I just haven't. One of them's very recent. So that's not that's not the one that's been bugging me. But another one is sort of from a couple of weeks ago. And it was meant to be in an edition of Midweek Write-Up. But I didn't do that version. And then it was going to be in another edition that I also didn't do. And then I was going to make it a standalone article. But at this point it was weeks past the story happening. And I've just decided, you know what? It's kept bugging me. I'm just going to talk about it on this podcast and then I can be done with it. It'll be over. I won't have to think about it again because I will have actually spoken about it. This is like the weird thing that happens when you, in my experience, when you get into writing and and doing this sort of thing is that you suddenly have the sort of urge to write about more stories and different stories and talk about more stories and different stories and this story that I'm going to go into, which is actually relatively minor, though really weird, I've been wanting to talk about it for weeks or write about it for weeks and I just haven't and it's, it's kept in the brain as a result and I'm finally going to talk about it in a bit. It's not the main story from the world of sports this week and therefore I can't justify it being the main story on this podcast despite the fact that I really 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 want to talk about it. Instead this week we have to talk about the main story first and unfortunately it is about Peng Shui, the Chinese tennis player. Now I'll be honest as somebody who doesn't really follow tennis I wasn't aware of who Peng Shui was before the start of this week. However, she has made the news in probably the most depressing way any person could make the news. About two weeks ago, Peng Shui made serious accusations that she had been sexually assaulted by a senior minister in the Chinese Communist Party. And obviously, Those are technically just accusations, though I would argue that the actions taken since by the Chinese government have not been essentially putting up a very good defence case against such accusations. Because after she had made the claim, she essentially disappeared off the face of the earth, not seen in a very long time. Considering the nature of the accusations that Peng Shui had made and the fact that she had then suddenly vanished off the face of the earth, there was a lot of concern for her safety and her well being. And that only rose as time elapsed. Until the Chinese government published an email sent by Peng Shui. We'll get to it. That said that she's absolutely fine and she's resting at home, and the accusations were not actually genuine, and it was all rumours, and she was absolutely fine. I say sent by her, but if you know about the history of the Chinese government, and you understand the news story that came before, then you would very easily be able to put two and two together, and realise, and I'll be honest, it's technically an opinion, but it is also the editorial stance of this podcast and basic common sense that suggests that Peng Shui actually didn't write that letter at all, and it was completely fabricated. Because of course it was. Every single detail about the case would make it seem absolutely obvious that this was a forged letter. And again, I can't say that's an absolute Stonewall fact, but come on. As the week went on, more and more tennis players started getting involved in the conversation. Andy Murray sent a message about it. Roger Federer sent a message about it. Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, so many other tennis players. Peng Shui had taken over the tennis world and the concern for her well-being was at the forefront of everyone's mind. It's got to the point where the UN are now calling for China to prove that Peng Shui is is in fact safe. There was a video that went up on Twitter, supposedly showing Peng Shui smiling with officials at a Chinese tennis tournament. But again, this has all been controlled by the Chinese state media. How much validity you want to give to anything they ever publish, I'll leave up to you. Me personally, it wouldn't be a lot. Essentially, even now, two weeks later... We haven't seen Peng Shui in a location where people outside of the Chinese Communist Party could verify her safety. And since we should take the word of the Chinese government so, 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 with so much salt that it would make any dish unpalatable, it's seen and understood that you cannot confirm her safety whatsoever. And it's truly concerning. And I don't know where the world goes from here, but the World Tennis Association, they've handled this perfectly. They have said, they have stood up and said they will not hold tennis events in China unless her safety is confirmed. They said we will walk away from that money. And that is a lot of money. And we have seen so many times in the world of sports that... Money is often the only thing that matters. So to see the World Tennis Association taking another stance, standing up for what is morally right, is really encouraging. I hope there is a good conclusion to this, and that Peng Shui is safe, and that the accusations are dealt with in a proper way, though I am very, very, very pessimistic about that ever happening. It's... Just another ultra-concerning story from from China. This isn't the first time this has happened to someone. It won't be the last time it happens to someone. And, of course, you will point out this happens in other countries too. And it's also bad there. But Peng Shui is taking the attention this week. And, of course, we all wish for her safety. There is so much more about this story, by the way, that I can't really go into on a podcast. So, I would... If this is the first time you're hearing about this, this is the first time you're hearing about the situation that Peng Shui is in, just go and look it up. Do some reading on the story because it is truly concerning and the more people who know about it and the more pressure that the Chinese government is put under, the better. So now I get to get on to the story that I was teasing earlier and it's one that if I'd done immediately, it would have already been outdated. So, thankfully, I didn't do that. And it's just um, an incredibly weird story from the world of pro cycling. So, Sergio Aguita, who rides for EF Education Nippo, was filmed as part of a video. I don't know if it was like a, a particular stunt or anything, but. The video in question was taken during a Gran Fondo in Colombia, which just means big ride by the way, and it's just an event where a lot of people, amateur cyclists, cycling enthusiasts, go and cycle, and the video in question was a load of cyclists, amateur cyclists like you or me, cycling up this mountain. And a common publicity stunt to do at these events is to have these amateur cyclists who are on this really massive ride, probably quite tired, going up a mountain that they're not used to. You have them cycling, and then you have pro cyclists, who are obviously a lot more used to these conditions, just flying past them. And in this case, it was Sergio Aguita and another rider, which I believe was Daniel Martinez from Ineos Grenadiers, riding past them like the others are cycling through treacle or whatever. And it's always really fun because you see all of these average cyclists going at average speed, and then you see Higuita and Martinez just speeding past them like they're not there. It would be like watching a Formula One car overtake a lawnmower or whatever, a tractor. Just the difference in speeds. You know them lawnmowers you can sit on, by the way. That's what I'm referring to. Not just a guy pushing a lawnmower. Uh, anyway, that's really not the point of this. Higita Martinez were in this video. Riding past all of these riders at a much faster pace. It was just quite fun to watch. And I saw it and I didn't really pay attention. I first saw it on... I'm trying to remember what the page is called. I think it was on R Peloton that I first saw it on. It might have been cycling out of context on Twitter. But I saw it on one of the cycling social media pages I frequent a lot. And I just sort of laughed at it and, you know, moved on with my day. I thought it was quite funny because the caption was Pogaccio and Roglic against the rest of the peloton. And so I I found that quite funny. And and then just got on with my day until I found out that Sergio Aguita had been fired from Education Nippo why had he been fired well upon closer look of the video he is wearing his ef education nippo jersey okay fine but he's also riding a specialized bike and if you are not you know at one with the world of cycling specialized is a brand When I say specialised bike, I mean a brand, like driving a Ferrari, you know, riding a specialised bike. It doesn't mean that the bike is specialised in a certain way, it's the name of the brand. And the thing is, there's a close bond between any professional cycling team and the bikes they ride. And EF ride Cannondale Super 6 Evos, according to cyclingtips.com, which I'll be honest, I didn't know because I don't pay that much attention. So, here was Higuita in a video, in his team's jersey, riding a different company's bikes. And for an outside to the world of cycling, you might go, okay, who cares, right? And that's fair enough. I'll be honest, even I wasn't really that fussed when somebody pointed it out and went, oh, Higita's in riding a specialised bike, and I was like, okay. Because, again, I wouldn't have known who EF Education Nippo get their bikes from if they had not been pointed out to me. But the thing is, that is a breach of contract. By any professional cycling team standards, that is a breach of contract. Not riding on another bike. we might ride on another bike when they're training or when they're doing publicity stunts like this was. But simultaneously wearing the team's jersey and riding on another company's bike is, in fact, a breach of contract. And so, as a result, EF Education Nippo originally took the decision to dismiss him. And it was one of them, at the time, I'd sort of got my notes prepared, and the stance I took was, Higita had been stupid, even though, to most of us, it would seem like a real non-issue to these teams and these companies it actually really is. And so all he had to do was either not wear his Education Nippo jersey and, and kit or not ride a specialised bike. If he'd done either of them two things it wouldn't have mattered. If EF hadn't looked so closely at the video it also wouldn't have mattered. And you can say, and I think it's a very fair point, this is a complete overreaction, this is just a small video. And there is sort of that correct opinion that if EF hadn't brought it up, I don't think anyone would have actually noticed. Because most people, just like me, saw that original video and laughed it off, and then moved on with their day. But when EF brought it up and said, oh, he's been fired as a result of this, I'm like, oh, yeah, look, he is riding a different bike, I guess. Okay, cool. And that seemed like the end of it. Higita had been a bit reckless EF had maybe overreacted, but then again, a breach of contract is a breach of contract. And you can't say, oh, well, it's only a minor breach of contract. Any breach of contract usually results in your sacking. And that was that. The thing is, Higita is leaving EF Education Nippo at the end of the season anyway. He had completed his last race for the team. Obviously, the World Tour season finished a while ago now. And he was going to be moving to Brother Hansgrove for the 2022 season. The cycling contracts, even though the World Tour calendar ends in October, the contracts run through to January. And so, even if you sign with a new team for the upcoming season, you can't actually leave your current team until three months after the season has ended. And that's what Higita was going to do. He was going to join Brother Hansgrove in January. And continue his cycling career there. So his time at EF Education Nippo was already over at the point this video had been taken anyway. Over his time at EF Education Nippo, Hikita has been a really good team player and has won races for EF and just been one of their better riders. And so with him already leaving anyway, the opinion formed within the team that they didn't really want his time with EF Education Nippo a largely successful period to end with this sacking and with this sort of ugly breakup. After Higita had apologised, he came out, he apologised profusely and said it was a really stupid mistake, I shouldn't have made it. And by the way, I should mention that Brother Hansgrove, his new team, Ride specialized bikes, which is probably where he got the bike from in the first place. Higita said, Look, I've been stupid, I made a mistake. I apologize strongly to the team and our sponsors. And EF said, He's been such a good rider for us over the last few years. We don't want this relationship to end in this way. So we won't fire him and he can leave at the end of his contract as was planned before. So The whole sort of incident was smoothed over at that point, and it can just be one of them weird, quirky stories we remember years down the line, maybe. It's nice, though. It's nice. I I actually really like EF Education Nippo, and as a result, I've really enjoyed watching Sergio Higuita ride for them, and it's nice that it's not going to end on this really sort of ugly note, so... Well done to both parties for reconciling their differences and, of course, best of luck to Sergio Aguita when he moves to Borough Hansgrove for the 2022 season. Okay, it's now time to go into the football that happened over the last week. I'll be honest, this podcast was meant to come out way earlier in the week and it just didn't. So we're going to talk about the football from last weekend as well as some games in midweek in the Football League, but we're going to start in the Bundesliga Why, I actually don't know. It's just the first set of fixtures on the show plan. And to be honest, I don't remember why I put them in that order. So we're just going to start off with the Bundesliga. And it does mean we get to start off with a big mistake I made this week. I made a shocking mistake. I decided on Friday, last Friday, not today, that I was going to watch the QPR Luton game ...over the Bundesliga game. And of course I was going to watch QPR Loot... ...and that's my second favourite Championship side... ...against my third favourite Championship side. I mean, come on. It was going to be absolutely phenomenal. It wasn't. And that meant that I didn't watch... ...the game from the Bundesliga that night. Which, yeah, no problem, right? Problem. Augsburg 2, Bayern Munich 1. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All of the action in this game coming in the first half... Mads Pedersen scoring his first goal in the Bundesliga, Pedersen reacting well to a spilled ball in the middle of the box, the Bayern defence didn't respond quickly enough, we'll get on to the Bayern defence later, Andre Hahn later on scoring ahead of him in the middle of the box as well, that was 2-0 after 35 minutes, Robert Lewandowski then scored 3 minutes later for Bayern because of course he did really good volley from the Polish striker as well. There are some people who think that Robert Lewandowski doesn't deserve to win the Ballon d'Or and of course the rumours are that he hasn't won the Ballon d'Or and that is objectively stupid. This was problematic for Bayern, obviously because they lost, but not only because of that, but this was an Augsburg side that have been dealing with quite a lot of injuries that had a lot of key players missing and Bayern still couldn't beat them and the problem was, once again, the defence because... For some reason, Bayern's defence just has this problem where they just sort of just don't show up at points and they have lapses in concentration. Of course, we saw this during a game I actually I don't think I mentioned on a podcast because we weren't doing them, but Bayern's 5-0 loss against Borussia Mönchengladbach in the DFB Pacal. But also in this game, both goals, you know, really good credit to Peterson and Hahn, but at the same time, Bayern's defending could have been way, way, way better and it just wasn't and they just turned off and were punished both times times by Augsburg and credit to Augsburg of course as well because that's clinical but Bayern shouldn't have been conceding either of them goals to be honest. Apart from that, Bayern did completely dominate, credit to Augsburg who were defensively resilient and stopped Bayern from getting away with many of the shots they can sometimes get They played without fear, they knew what they had to do to win and they executed, credit to Augsburg, they were more than worthy victors in this game. Before we move on, there is something else we need to talk about. You may remember that Bayern in the 90s and 2000s had the name FC Hollywood and that's because they were always in the papers for off the pitch reasons as well as on the pitch reasons. They knew how to court controversy and be sort of in the news cycle for what was going on around the team and this has proven to be the case once again. It feels like FC Hollywood is being born once more. Bayern came out with a fairly strong comment saying that any player who is unvaccinated and misses time due to not being able to play because of COVID will have their wages deducted. They will not be paid during that time and that for me is absolutely the correct decision from Bayern Munich but of course a lot of their players are notably against vaccinations because they're notably quite thick. Leader of this Merry Men of Idiots is Joshua Kimmich who has been very public and vocal in his I don't want to say hatred of a vaccine because I feel like that would be even a bit too harsh for a man who I have just called an idiot, but he's definitely not fond of the COVID vaccine and has not taken it. And There are several players in the Bayern Munich team who have the same attitude and supposedly these players are thinking of suing the club. Why they are suing the club for pursuing a common sense measure is beyond me. Actually, it's not beyond me. They're a bit thick. So... That's great. That was a great start to the week for Bayern, but then it got worse because whilst Bayern's board took the right approach with the matter of Covid and paying players who won't get the vaccine, they have very much not taken the right approach with Qatar Airways. You might know that Bayern have Qatar Airways as a sleeve sponsor, and I do not need to tell you why that is bad you probably know already, especially if you've been following how the build-up to the World Cup has been going in the country. This is a real point of contention for Bayern Munich fans. They regularly protest the decision to have Qatar Airways on their sleeve. They don't like it. A lot of fans have just flat-out refused to buy the shirt as a result. And there are regular protests, regular banners, and this problem came to the fore this week at the AGM Bayern's fans meeting where they can voice their concerns, voice their problems and try and vote on motion. So one of the motions that went up was to either cancel or refuse to renew the contract with Qatar Airways for sponsorship. And the fans came up to the stage, made really passionate speeches, very good speeches, Bayern's board in their infinite stupidity weren't having any of it and I'll be honest I can't put forward the case for why Bayern's president is a complete moron better than he can. If you can watch the videos and I think DW News have a lot of the videos up on Twitter then you will see just how stupid Bayern are. The president who I forgot the name of and I'll be honest does not deserve me googling and looking up his name he doesn't deserve that sort of time is is sort of off in a complete fantasy land, where he was going, I'm sure I can convince everyone as to why this sponsorship is great for the club. No, no, he can't, though. The feeling about Qatar is very, very strongly held within what is a really good fan base in Bayern Munich. And so they tried to push a motion, saying that the sponsorship with Qatar Airways in particular has to be scrapped. And the president simply wouldn't allow it. He also called an end to the meeting early with fans still wanting to speak because essentially he was fed up of hearing their opinions. The weird thing about Bayern Munich is that there was a comment when the Super League came out that really stuck with me from then CEO Karl-Heinz Rummenigge and he said that we are living in Munich, we know what the fans feel and we will hear when they have problems and we have to listen to them and we are almost forced to because of how loud they are and the fact we live in the city and, you know, we have to correct problems when they see them because we are definitely going to hear about it. The president of the club clearly does not have the same sort of viewpoint on the matter and clearly isn't interested in hearing the opinions of fans, which really begs the question why would you become the president of a club in Germany? If you want to ignore the fans, come to England. England's great at ignoring fans. (sighs) Or Spain. But either way, that wasn't going to stop the Bayern fans because they stayed after the AGM was technically finished. They were chanting for the president to quit his post, which he absolutely has to do. And One of the fans made a really passionate speech on a chair and most of the fans at the AGM stayed behind to listen and gave him a rousing applause. And whilst, you know, the president wasn't there and the AGM wasn't still running, that image is really powerful and really, truly embarrassing for the pathetic board of Bayern Munich. Whilst, you know, I could talk about this for hours very, very angrily, don't let me paint a picture that the fans didn't win because the fans did win a notable battle. One of the motions that did go up for a vote was that any future sponsorship would have to take in mind the Convention on Human Rights. So, if a country or any other sponsor, for that matter, is failing to meet human rights standards, they would have to cut the sponsorship, cancel the sponsorship, not sign up to the sponsorship, fail to renew the sponsorship... Whatever. And whilst the Bayern board voted against it, an overwhelming majority of the fans voted it through. It is now part of the club's constitution, and the board cannot change that. Now, what it will mean, in most likelihood, and I'm quite pessimistic, but in most likelihood, it will mean that Bayern would not be able to sign a new deal with Qatar Airways because Qatar Airways, by the way, if you don't know, are ran by the state of Qatar. It is like how British Airways was before they were privatised. And, therefore, any scrutiny of the deal would have to take into account Qatar's awful human rights record. And that should mean that the deal won't be able to go through. Now, the Bayern board are going to fight on this because they apparently just like being wrong. And maybe it's the FC Hollywood thing of wanting to create drama. But, fingers crossed, this is a big win for the Bayern fans. And I know... Most in the English press and most English fans and most fans in general like to complain about Bayern because of their constant winning and how annoying it is. But this might be the biggest win of the season for Bayern Munich. Uh, their fans, it should be said, are actually really good. So credit to them. The fans should always be heard and hopefully the fans will always win. But Russia Dortmund 2, Stuttgart 1. And I watched this game live and it wasn't the best. Obviously, after Bayern's screw up the night before, Dortmund had a chance to close the gap on the champions and really start to threaten them at the top of the table. And that's exactly what they did. It wasn't the easiest victory, but hey, the champions learn how to win ugly, and this was an ugly win. It was nice to see Donny Marling get his first goal for Borussia Dortmund. That came in the second half. The first half was just abysmal. The second half started to pick up. The build-up was really good and patient. And when Daniel Marlin got his strike off, it wasn't the best strike in the world. It looked like it was on target. And it did get a deflection to go in. But when you've not scored yet and you're into November, you'll take it. It was his first goal for Borussia Dortmund in the league. And a momentous one of that. Stuttgart did, in all fairness, they started the second half a better side. They probably deserved their equaliser. Which came through Roberto Massimo when he responded best to a long ball. Long through ball and then skipped around the defenders. Dortmund probably could have defended it better. But to be honest, at that point, Stuttgart deserved something. And as the minutes ticked on afterwards, it really just felt like another... Truly frustrating game for Dortmund. Bar the Marlin goal. The first half had been frustrating. Dortmund starts. The second half had been frustrating. Their conceding a goal so quickly after Dortmund had taken the lead was frustrating. It's at this moment you need someone, a true leader, to stand up and seize the day and take all three points. And that is what Captain Marco voice did. Thank the Lord. It was him who initiated the quick counter-attack, and when Hazard's shot was saved by the keeper, he was there to immediately took in the rebound. All in all, I think it'd be hard to say that Dormund really had a great performance and deserved this, but it's just one of them things you've got to take when you're in such a race, and you need every point possible, so... Overall, not much to complain about. Hoffenheim 2, Leipzig Nil, definitely not the most liked game in the Bundesliga, but Leipzig just seems to have these games. They're struggling to adapt fully to life under Jesse March. Um this was just another one of them games where they really seemed to struggle. First goal of the game came from I think his name is SamasQ. Samask? I don't know how to say his name, I'll be honest. He headed in from a corner and then Hoffenheim got their second goal. In the second half, it was Munis de Boer getting it. A really good finish from outside the box into the bottom corner. To be honest, for me, looking back at what I could from this game, because I didn't watch the game live, Leipzig just showed no life at all throughout the entire match. And it was really surprising because, you know, they've got a lot of talent. But they just... They just looked really weak, and even though they, you know, they had a lot of possession and they had a lot of time on the ball, they didn't really do anything with it. And it it must be frustrating for a Leipzig fan. But then again, who cares? But still, a lot of questions to be asked. I think Jesse March is a good manager, and I think he'll turn it around eventually. But still, it's it's not been the greatest start to his time as manager of Leipzig. Final game to mention then from the Bundesliga, Union Berlin 2, Hertha Berlin 0. Woo! I enjoyed this, and I'm sure you'll be stunned to hear that I enjoyed this. By the way, the most recent edition of following Union Berlin is now out on the sports split, and Union came out in this game. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy about the fans and the crowd that was there, and whether it was too many given... Germany's COVID situation and that is a conversation for other people to have obviously. I would consider myself to be more cautious so I am probably not a fan of it but it happened and it is worth pointing out whether the fans should have been there or not. The fans definitely did contribute to Union's performance. They came out fighting Taiwo Wanyi, who has been just incredible for Union Berlin, getting the opening goal. Christopher Trimmel then scoring one of the funkier goals I've seen. ball coming in from a corner, it sort of curved out towards the edge of the box and Trimmel just sort of hit it. And because the keeper couldn't see, there were so many players ahead of him, he couldn't see that the ball was rolling into the bottom corner. Rolling actually is the wrong word. Bouncing would be the correct word. And yeah, couldn't do anything about it. Reacted too late. And Herter had a really good end to the first half and of course put the ball in the back of the net, but it was ruled out for... Maybe the closest VAR offside decision I've ever seen. But after that, it so deflated them, they came out for the second half, and they just seemingly couldn't do anything, get anything going. They were dreadful for that entire second half, and to be honest, it didn't look like they were ever going to score. And I mentioned this in the article, but if the build-up wasn't the problem, then the final pass would be the problem. And if the final pass wasn't the problem, then the shot was completely off target. It was just a truly abysmal performance in that second half from Herta. Only on more than deserved their victory, and when when David Salka tried to throw his shirt into the crowd, they threw it straight back at him. And if that's not the perfect sort of analogy for how Herta have been doing over the last few years, and how their fans have been feeling about how Herta have been doing over the last few years, and I don't know what is. It was a great game, on it shows. Just how different these two sides are and the different directions in which they're heading in. Union, of course, traditionally, the smaller side. But they've been ran so much better. They deserve a lot of credit for their signings, the atmosphere within the club. So many things Union get right. Fan engagement as well, obviously. And it feels like everything is being done very professionally there. And that they've been building so well over the last few years that... Who knows how far they go for Hertero. They are a complete shambles from the from the boardroom to the players. Nothing is done right there, and it's hard to see how this gets fixed anytime soon without a fundamental change in management there. And I don't mean Paul Daldai, who I think is reasonably good. It, it's for people above him who are doing so wrong. They have these ambitions of being Berlin's big club and fighting. At the very top of the league and in European competition, which is something Unione are doing and not to. And they're just not doing anything correctly to get there. The club is a complete shambles. The players are just this hodgepodge who are not designed to work together. There's no like, coherent planning place, which you can see with Union Berlin, Hertha don't have that. And honestly, I don't know where they go from here. I don't know how it gets better from here. There are so many questions to ask about this Hertha Berlin side. Okay, before we leave the lovely country of Germany, we are going to have to go into the spider Bundesliga for a bit. Remember, by the way, if you want to read about St. Pauli, then following St. Pauli is a regular series, I don't have sports split. They lost at the weekend, 4-0 to Darmstadt. <sighs> Jesus Christ! All of the goals, by the way, came in the first 40 minutes. It was painful. But they did beat Sandhausen in midweek, and by the way, if you can, go and watch the Guido berg opening goal from the Sandhausen game, because it was absolutely fantastic, but... We're not talking about any games in the fighter Bundesliga per se. We are going to briefly mention Werder Bremen 1, Schalke 1. But the main reason we're talking about fighter is because of former Werder head coach, Markus Anfang. And you will notice that I said former there. Because he had to quit Werder Bremen after an investigation was launched by local police looking into whether Amfang had used a fake vaccination card. Now, obviously, the idea of faking a vaccination card, it's a very strong allegation. And at the point of recording, Marcus Amfang has neither been proved guilty or innocent of use of a fake vaccination card. Obviously, that will change. There had been some really weird stories about Anfang. And about this alleged use. So I'm not going to comment on whether he's guilty or not for the time being. Because there is literally no point. I know nothing more than anyone else who can use a search engine knows. But clearly it was going to be a really ugly sort of period for Verde Bremen. If he had stayed on either way. And so resigning was the best thing to do regardless. And of course we don't know whether he's guilty or innocent like I've said. But... Even if he was innocent, this would have dragged on for quite a while. It would have really dragged Verda through the mud and the players through the mud. It was definitely the correct decision. It wouldn't surprise me if somebody went up to him and went, you really need to go. Though Marcus did say he resigned of his own volition. Regardless of whether that's true or not, definitely the correct call. They drew one all in the game with Schalke in the end, and it was actually a surprisingly good performance for a side that had literally lost their man. He resigned on the morning of the game. They kept it relatively close for the most part, and you know some will say, looking at how the game panned out, they actually deserved to win. Simon Tirada, though, did what Simon Tirada does best. He scored for Schalke to open for scoring in the 82nd minute, and Veda only did get one back in the end through the penalty spot. But for the most part, considering what happened, considering that he'd resigned on the morning of the game and that several coaches had then tested positive for COVID as well, meaning they had to be out, considering all that had happened... It really was a surprise that Werder were in this game at all. Schalke have started off the season relatively well. Not significantly better than Werder, but, you know, they've not been like massively struggling. And so this was going to be a really tough game for Werder Bremen and they came out of it. So credit to them. Now we have to answer what comes next. Obviously, any sort of discussion on Anfang's innocence or guilt will not be concluded by the time Werder Bremen play this weekend. And so, they need to go in a different route with their new manager. Most of the reports that I've seen have heavily linked them with Daniel Farker, the former Norwich manager. That would be a really good hire for them. I think he knows how to get promoted from a second tier. And he plays quite good football. And whether he needs a better squad to get promoted from this league, who knows. It's a developmental year for Verder more than anything else anyway. So... He would, for me, be a good appointment. I don't know if they're going to go down that route and hire him. They might hire somebody else. But either way, they just need to move on from this. It's been a really sort of ugly week. And just moving on is the best thing to do. Oh, by the way, before we move on, I I completely forgot to mention the penalty seemed light, in my opinion. I, I couldn't see much contact. Maybe I was looking in the wrong place. But, like, it didn't seem like much. 99th minute as well. It did seem a bit harsh for me. But, I like Werder Bremen more than I like Schalke. So, I'm not going to massively complain. Okay, let's go into La Liga then. And, let's start off with Atletico Madrid 1. Osasuna 1. By the way, I'm trying to keep this to, like, a minimum number of games. And, you know, you judge how well that's going. (laughs) But... Atletico Osasuna 0 it kind of felt like one of their games from last year where they just couldn't get going to begin with. They, they, you know, they had possession, they had shots, but they just weren't really doing much with anything. And it looked like one of those where, despite their relative dominance, Osasuna were going to be able to run away with a point. But Atletico Madrid finally got the goal that they probably should have got. Felipe scoring in the 87th minute. Simeone's side just managed to do this. It feels, it does feel like one of them games from the title run last year, except for, obviously, when Atletico Madrid and Osasuna played last year, Osasuna took the lead, and then Atletico scored two in like the space of four minutes. I think we talked about it on the Beautiful Game podcast. If, yeah, we definitely talked about it. Was it their penultimate game of the season, I want to say, against Osasuna? I think it was, but... Yeah, just about managing to get the win. Obviously, the main game from the weekend in La Liga, Barcelona won Espanyol 0. Xavi's first game in charge of FC Barcelona, something that has been coming for an incredibly long amount of time and Barca's performance was underwhelming. And I I see myself getting drawn into the trap that I warned about. I wrote an article about Xavi going to Barcelona and I feel myself getting drawn into the same trap that from day one you expect sort of Pep Guardiola-style football. And whilst that definitely is what Xavi is trying to bring in the future, it's not what he's going to be able to do now. And when you look at how Barca played in this game as opposed to their final games of the Kumin era, it was definitely an improvement. But... Still, it, it just wasn't an inspiring performance. But then again, should we be expecting inspiring performances from this Barca side so early into the Chavi regime? The only goal of the game came from the penalty spot scored by Memphis Depay. At first, I thought it was a definite penalty. And when VAR looked at it, I thought it was a definite penalty. But when I watched it again and again and again... Suddenly, my confidence levels started to come down, and to be honest, maybe I was swayed by the commentators and the pundits. But by the end of it, I I can't say it was a penalty. It wasn't like the most egregious call ever, but uh, I can't say I can't say that was a penalty, and that was the game. Espanol had so many chances to get something. They had so many really good chances, and their finishing just wasn't there. Their finishing was a, was abysmal. And so they really should have got something out of the game, and if they had, who knows what the reaction would have been from these fans at Barca who think Xavi's going to immediately change the fortunes of the club. But on the one hand, I want to say Espanyol deserved something, but their finishing was so bad, they, they didn't, really. And... Travi, it's clear it's going to play as many players from La as possible. And that's for correct call. And as Barca try to climb this financial hole that they're in, La is going to be their greatest strength. I can't remember the, the name of the winger off the top of my head who, who came in for his first game. Was it Akamash? Akamak? Akamash? Something along them lines. And he just had a bad game, to be honest. Though, when you're 17 years old and you're making your debut for the first team... In the Derby de Barcelona, it, it's hard to really, you know, be too critical. Barca will improve, Xavi will improve, but this just wasn't a good game. And to be honest, Espanyol should be really disappointed with their finishing because they could have got a point out of Barcelona. And to be honest, they could have maybe even got the win. Other games I want to quickly mention as well by the way, South Vigo won Villarreal 1. I really enjoyed this game, but bearing in mind I also really like South Vigo and Villarreal. So of course I would like this game. Alberto Moreno scored for Villarreal in the first half. Bryce Mendez scoring in the second half. Both of the goals were similar in a strange way because both of them were the result of the keeper spilling the ball. And to be honest, in both circumstances I don't think the keeper really had any right to complain. And to be honest, no one else really had that real cutting-edge chance or that sort of clinicalness to win the game for their side. So, on reflection, a draw was a fair result. And I like both sides, so I'm not going to complain about a draw either. Sevilla 2, Alarez 2. Sevilla are in the title race in La Liga this year, and that's what made this game... Really frustrating because let's face it, Sevilla should be beating Alvarez, and um, they came out of the traps really slowly. Conceded in the fifth minute, Victor LaGuardia scoring a bullet header from across. Honestly, flew straight into the top corner, like 100,000 miles per hour. Lucas Campos was given far too much space in the middle of the box to equalise in the 37th minute before Alvarez got a penalty. In the 52nd minute of the first half, there were seven minutes added time in the first half. Alavez got a penalty right towards the end, Hosolu scoring that penalty. The arm of, I believe it was Lucas Campos as well, was in an unnatural position. He was in the wall for a free kick. His arm went up into an unnatural position, so it was a penalty. Uh, like I said, Alvarez scored it. And to be honest, Sevilla just really seemed to struggle in the second half. Couldn't really get any major, really good chance. And like with the Dortmund game we discussed earlier, it took a moment of brilliance to save them, to give them a point from captain Ivan Rakitic. He hit it on the half volley into the bottom corner in about the 92nd minute. And it meant that Sevilla got a point, which on paper they deserved, but to be honest... They were really just not clinical enough. Against an Alivez side, who obviously are towards the bottom of the La Liga table, really, if they want to keep up on this title of they're going to have to be doing better than that. Okay, we're going to conclude the football section of this podcast, and pretty much most of this podcast, by talking about the Championship, my favourite league in the world, alongside the fighter Bundesliga and La Liga and the Bundesliga. That's why it's these four leagues that are mentioned. And the first game we're going to talk about, Hull City 2, Birmingham City nil. And I, I like the championship. I, I love the championship. It's arguably my favourite league in the world. But sometimes it can be really frustrating. George Honeyman scored for Hull in the 17th minute. But uh, the thing is, the ball had very, very clearly crossed the line for the goal kick. And the Birmingham players had stopped because the ball was so far over the line, it might as well have been in the Humber. And yet, the linesman somehow didn't see it, and the play carried on, and it was George Honeyman who scored for Hull. It was so shockingly bad that I honestly question where they get these officials from, because it it truly... And I will praise the officials later on, because there was a decision I think they got right, but this was just dreadful. And and shocking, and go and look it up if you haven't seen it, but still, uh, honestly, I just don't get it. I don't get how bad the officiating is. Malik Will scored in the 57th minute, Garigana was sent off. Who cares? The only thing to point out from this game is just how bad the officiating was. Quit. This is the best argument for VAR that there is, because if officials are going to keep making dumb mistakes like this, then something needs to be installed to try and help. Though then again, will the VAR official be any better? The VAR official probably would have looked at it and gone, yep, yeah, fine. <sighs> this game annoys me so, 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 so much. Two more games on the weekend that were worth talking about in the championship. First of all, Swansea won Blackpool one. Joe Privo scoring for Swansea, an absolute screamer. Go and look that up as well. Or just watch EFL on Quest because VFL on Quest is fantastic. But I, I sort of didn't estimate properly the value Joe Joe Perot would have for Swansea this season and he has shown just how good he is and um, this game showed it once again as well. Swansea had three penalty claims in this game and normally when a team have three penalty claims you'd think they'd get one of them but Swansea didn't. In all fairness the first one was absolutely not a penalty it would have been absolutely ridiculous for the officials to give that. The second one was more of a, I could understand if it was given, but I agree that it shouldn't have been given. It was it was a borderline case, you could maybe argue either way, but for me, I, I slightly side on the it's not a penalty sort of side, but the third one absolutely was a penalty, and it stuns me that the officials didn't give it, because there were about two or three kicks that... I can't remember who it was who was on the ball. Tuck before he went to ground. It was a clear penalty. There was multiple points of contact. And it stunned me that the officials didn't give it. So, Swansea definitely have a right to be somewhat disappointed with the officiating. Blackpool scored after all three of them penalty claims. Keshi Anderson in the middle of the box. A good controlled volley. Final game to mention then from the Championship over the weekend... Derby 3 Bournemouth 2. Yeah. Yeah, it did happen. You're not you're not dreaming it. And that was the game that got Derby back to zero points. Well done. And they're on one now, because they drew him midweek with Fulham, which is apparently what happens to Fulham when they don't have Alexandra Mitrovic, which understandable. Derby actually played really well. They they deserved their win. They only had three shots on target. And scored three, so clearly a great game from Travers in the goal, but still, they're playing with a sort of confidence that I didn't expect them to have, and they're playing with a style that means that when they play the big sides, when they play Bournemouth, when they play Fulham, they don't look like they're out of place. And, you know, that's really impressive. I think Wayne Rooney's actually done quite a good job at Derby this season, despite the fact they're on one point. They would have had 22 if it wasn't for the points deductions, and that would put them 19th place. And bearing in mind the squad that Derby have got, that's actually quite impressive. So credit to Wayne Rooney and credit to the Derby players for that performance. Obviously, the draw in midweek with Fulham, easier to explain through just saying, no Mitrovic, no Fulham goals. But still, it's been an impressive week for Derby. Talking about the games in midweek then as well, first thing we should mention, Reading nil, Sheffield United 1. There are two reasons to talk about this game. First of all, John Fleck collapsed during it. He was taken to a hospital in Reading and has since been discharged. He's back in Sheffield. But again, another horrifying sort of incident with a player collapsing on the pitch. You never want to see it and our best wishes go to John and his recovery. And the other reason to mention this game, Slavici Okanovic has been sacked as Sheffield United boss. He leaves the side 16th in the table on 23 points and it is fair to point out that Slavici Okanovic's sides in the championship in the past have always got off to slow starts and they've always underperformed in the first half of the season and then caught five in the second half and ended up getting promoted. But this this was a unique sort of level of bad for him. And I think the game more against Coventry, because I watched it, really exemplified to me just how bad Sheffield United are for the squad they've got. They should be able to score more consistently than Sheffield United are for the defenders they have. They shouldn't be as suspects at the back. They just look like a bad championship side and they've got way better players than a bad championship side have. So, this was a chance for the Sheffield United board, and we won't get into the ethics of the Sheffield United board, but this was a chance for the Sheffield United board to pick a new leader, somebody who would be able to really grab the ball by the horns and take them back to the promised land. Who did they hire? Paul Heckingbottom. (laughs) Okay... Now, I don't have anything against Paul Heckingbottom. There's no reason for me to have anything against Paul Heckingbottom, but that is such an uninspiring hiring. I know he's been at the club for a few years now and that he knows the place, but honestly, just pick anyone else, you know? This, for me, just reeks of unambition. And of just not caring. That team that they've assembled, a lot of them are going to be able to get back to the Premier League with or without Sheffield United. And the parachute payments that they get as a result of relegation from the Premier League, they're not going to be there forever. And so, when you see this sort of move, it's just really concerning. I think every Sheffield United fan has every right... To really be dismayed at this hire and to really question it and to question what the club want going forward because if it's a place in the Premier League, they clearly do not know how to achieve it. And I mentioned when Sheffield United were last here that Wilder got them promoted in spite of what was going on ahead of him. And it feels like whatever manager's going to come in, obviously it's Heckingbottom, is going to have to deal with doing the same thing. And Bottom's not that sort of manager. I don't think he's a manager who can deal with the adversity ahead of him and, you know, overcome it like Wilder did. And so I don't see any optimism for Sheffield United this season anymore. I sort of... A month ago, I was like, yeah, you can of it, will turn it around. He's always done that. But this month's proven that, that probably wasn't going to be the case anyway. And now that they've hired Paul Bottom, man they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And if, if he turns it around, fair play to him. He obviously had a good time at Barnsley, but that was in League One, and that was also with actually quite a talented squad. I just I don't see it happening. I just don't see it happening. And I think even if hecking Bottom works out, it will be more by luck than it would be by grand vision from the Sheffield United owners, and it would still pose a lot of questions for the future commentary nil birmingham nil the one reason to mention this game ryan woods was sent off late on and a lot of birmingham fans were unhappy with it and were then equally as unhappy when the efl decided that the decision to give him a red card was correct and they didn't change their ruling and it drew the eye of a lot of birmingham fans and the sky commentators i'll be honest i have no clue why I'm going to say this in a way less elegant way than George Ellick did on EFL on Quest, but it was a completely cynical, deliberate foul, and I truly hate them. You know, the deliberate, professional fouls where the aim is just to... Tactical fouls, that's what they're called. Where the aim is just to bring the player to the ground without playing the ball. I absolutely cannot stand them. I think they should be kicked out of the game as fast as possible, It was just a cynical challenge that was designed to bring the player down. It has no space in football. It ruins the entertainment. It ruins the quality of the game. And the more that referees start red-carding it, the better. Because I really want that sort of foul kicked out of the game completely. Middlesbrough 1, Preston 2. We have to talk about this. Because, by the way, I think this is the first podcast that we've done since Chris Wilder got the job at Middlesbrough. We addressed the hiring of him in the last episode, but we haven't actually talked about him since he's taken over, and he's got a lot of problems to fix with that Middlesbrough side, as seen by Preston's second goal. Paddy McNair gave Middlesbrough the lead in the first half. Chad Evans equalised for Preston in the 77th minute, but the main reason to talk about this game, the Emil reese jacobsen <laughs> goal was hilarious. Sol Bamba, bless him. Obviously deserves a lot of credit for what he went through and coming back into football. A real nice guy. But he had a real bad moment where him and McNair just completely failed to communicate. McNair sort of turned his back to Bamba and Bamba was trying to try to play a pass to him. And it Sort of hit McNair deflected straight into the path of Emil Reese Jacobson. He was able to slot in. It was hilariously bad. It was one of them that football blooper DVDs will be showing for years upon years on end. It was it was fantastic. It was really, really funny. And oh god, just go and watch it. I know I recommend watching a lot on these podcasts, but that is really one of the things you need to watch because it was absolutely hilarious. Final game I want to mention then from the Championship. Bristol City 1, Stoke City 0. Tyreek Bakinson getting the only goal of the game in the 38th minute. Joe Allen getting sent off in the 97th. And after 17 games at home without being able to win, Bristol City have won two on the bounce. At home, I should say. Yeah. You try and make sense of that. The Championship is just wild. And I will love it forevermore. <laughs> It is truly weird. Credit to Bristol City, who did get quite a scout by beating Stoke City. I think this is just a blip for Stoke. Still sixth in the league. They're going to be absolutely fine. We do briefly have to talk about two games from the lower leagues as well. First of all, Fleetwood won Morecambe 2. Another thing you have to watch. Game was a one-all entering at a time. But Morecambe got a winner in the 97th minute through Cole Stockton, Mr. Goal Machine. It's not that he scored in the 97th minute that's interesting. It's how he did it because he scored from his own half in the 97th minute. I have seen a lot of late winners. I've seen a lot of winners from the 97th minute onwards. I have never seen a 97th minute winner in a game that was tied from a team's own half. It was sensational. Obviously, the keeper shouldn't have been that far off his line. It didn't look like he was going to come charging up anyway. But, Cole Stockton took advantage of the situation and just scored one of the more memorable goals we'll see this season. Absolutely fantastic. On the other side of that is what happened in League 2. Oldham 3, Port Vale 2. This one also had a late winner and it came in the 93rd minute and it was scored by Aaron Martin. Well done, Aaron. Thing is put it in his own net and oh boy was it absolutely hilarious if you watched it out of context you would think that Port Vale were attacking the goal that Aaron Martin scored into in fact he was meant to be defending that goal and just a great fantastic diving header really fantastically taken but it was into his own net Oldham needed that as well, because they've really been struggling this season. Entering the game, they'll level on points with bottom of the league, Scunthorpe. That win takes them out of relegation places. They're 22nd on 15 points. Carlisle, 23rd on 13 points. And, yeah, you're going to take it when you're down there. You're going to take a win in any way possible, even if it's gifted to you from the opponents. So, well done to Oldham, I guess. That's the most notable action from the EFL on the pitch covered, but we do need to talk about something else that's been in the news surrounding the Championship League 1 and League 2 this week. The EFL have threatened to lift the 3 o'clock blackout on all of their games, saying that if there is not any other financial package sort of agreed with the Premier League and with other stakeholders in English football, Sky Sports, to help secure more funding for for the Championship League 1 and League 2, then they will move to lift the blackout to try and gain more revenue. I, a few years ago, when I wrote the news, I wrote an article called The 3 O'Clock Blackout Needs to Die, and I'll be honest, it was as vague as the title suggests it is. I was massively against the blackout at the time. I really, really wanted it lifted, and I wouldn't say my opinions entirely changed because... The central argument behind the blackout is that by lifting it, you would reduce attendances. And that argument just doesn't really work because we have no blackout in pretty much every other country in the world, and yet attendances are perfectly fine. Obviously not at the moment because of COVID regulations, but for the most part, when there's not been a massive pandemic going on, attendances have always been fine. So the central argument behind the blackout Just doesn't work. It's not genuine. And if that's your main argument for keeping the blackout, you've got to get a better argument. My worry is actually something that was kind of voiced by the Premier League. Because I actually think England's an exceptional case. Or I think you could argue that England's an exceptional case. Whether it is or isn't, wouldn't be known until the blackout is lifted. But for me, fans in England put way too much emphasis on the Premier League. Like, way too much. It's like, for most fans in England, there is the Premier League and then who cares about everything else. And that is absolutely the wrong way to look at football. I don't care what anyone says. In Germany, the Schweizer Bundesliga is viewed less importantly than the Bundesliga, but not significantly less. And uh, The same goes with the Segunda in Spain compared to the Primera or La Liga, I should say, and with Ligue 1 and Ligue 2 in France and Serie A and Serie B in Italy, it seems like the sort of gap that people place between the Premier League and the Championship in terms of importance to them is way bigger for the average sports fan in England, the average football fan in England, than it is for a fan in Germany comparing the Bundesliga and the Schweizer or the La Liga and the Segunda in Spain, etc, etc, etc. So, the Premier League have said that they are against the EFL lifting the blackout because if the EFL do it, the Premier League will have pressure to do it too. And that's where I have a problem with it. I don't think the Premier League should lift the 3 o'clock blackout. The Football League is a different matter. If this was just the Football League by itself, I would be all for lifting the blackout. But I do worry that if the Premier League lifted the blackout, the sort of most English football fans just would stop caring entirely about the lower leagues and maybe that's just me trying to desperately hold on to the importance of the lower leagues. I don't know but there is definitely that possibility. So I understand why a lot of people are against lifting the blackout and I do worry that if people could watch every Premier League game they would be more than happy to let the rest of the football pyramid die because that's how they act as it is. I see most Premier League fans, they just don't care about the rest of the football pyramid, and it's such a shame, because that's where the proper football and the proper fans are. There is one more thing I want to touch upon, before we briefly go into France. And it's something I wouldn't normally talk about on this podcast, but it sort of needs to be talked about. And that's going to Solskjaer's sacking from Manchester United. Now... Despite the fact I don't watch Manchester United ever, like, literally ever, last time I watched them was probably, oh, the Europa League final it would have been. I watched parts of that. But, even without me watching them, I can tell you that the performances have been quite dire recently, and um, that Solskjaer has come under a lot of criticism for how he's been running the squad, and the decisions he's been making, and the tactics, and Man United finally took the decision to sack him, seemingly far too late. But the reason I want to talk about it isn't because of Solskjaer himself, or because of whether Man United were right, or, or the ludicrous idea to sign Ronaldo, not because it would make the squad better, but because it was a marketing opportunity, and that's all that Man United care about nowadays. I want to talk about this because of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's exit interview. It is very, very rare that a manager gets an exit interview. The one that comes to mind for me as an NFL one was Jimmy Johnson resigning from the Dallas Cowboys. But, you know, I can't think of many, if any, where there's been an actual established exit interview. And Solskjaer gave his exit interview to MUTV. And... It was just sort of, a lot of people have been responding to it like sort of mockingly and going, oh, typical Man United, how do we, why do we do that? And, you know, it's fair to ask why would Man United do it, but I think it's a reminder of Ole as a person because I'll be honest, I like the guy. I think he's really nice. He seems like a friendly sort of guy. He seems like he'd be like that with most people on the street, though, of course, I don't know because I've never met him but I think it's a reminder of just how much Manchester United means to him and how sort of this has gone down with him because he's clearly not taking it too well but he continues to want to be a fan of Manchester United and that's more than fair enough let's face it it would be wrong for Manchester United fans to think of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer primarily as a manager who didn't do anything. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will forever mainly be associated with Man United because of what happened in 1999 in the Champions League final. And to be honest, because he is such a nice guy, that's exactly how I want it to remain. Credit to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for taking the sacking well, for speaking so honestly, and for rooting for the club even after his sacking. The failure of Manchester United in recent years isn't with Solskjaer. Despite his tactics, despite his decision-making, it's not with him. It's with the people who employed him for as long as they did. And um, that needs to be remembered. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer himself needs to be remembered as the guy who scored that goal at the Camp Nou. Okay, let's go into France then and let's start with Brest 4, Lons 0. Well, I'll be honest, this is actually the first game from Ligue i I've watched this season outside of another game that we'll briefly be talking about later on. But, put it this way, it was the first game I watched this year that finished. And it was a truly bizarre game. of have started the season exceptionally well. And, you know, they're not going to challenge for the league title or anything like that. But, still, they were playing really well. And then you compare them to Brest, who are in a relegation battle, and, you know... It's an absolute no-brainer. I wasn't going to watch this match at first because I was like, well, I mean, it's obvious who's going to win, so why would I bother? But then it wasn't obvious who was going to win. The rest came out and completely dominated. I I still can't explain what happened, to be honest. I watched this game and I still can't explain it, so that's great. Credit to Brasso, a really big win for them and one that could give them so much momentum. Whereas for Lons, oof. Time to figure out what went wrong and to fix it as quickly as possible. The other game we have to talk about, Lyon against Marseille. You'll notice I didn't give a score for that. And that's because the game was postponed. For the third time this season, there has been... Fan trouble at a game that has led to either the partial stop or the full stop of said game. All three have involved Marseille and yet none of the three could really be seen as Marseille's fault. The first one was on the opening weekend against Montpellier. And there were fans throwing objects at one of the Marseille players. I can't remember who it was. But, you know it was the Montpellier fans throwing the objects and so the game had to stop for 12 minutes and then we picked it back up. Then Marseille later on in the month playing Nice and then a Nice fan throws an object at Dimitri Payet that causes a massive fight between the Marseille players, the Nice players, the Nice fans and eventually Marseille just flat out refused, refused to come back out correctly I think if they'd come back out, it would have put the players in danger, and the match has to be postponed. And again, the same thing happens. A Leon fan threw a water bottle directly at the head of Dimitri Payet, and the game had to be postponed. Lee Gun had the marketing opportunity of all marketing opportunities at the start of this season. They landed messy. Messi signed with their league essentially and you know they could put that on every single billboard around the world, and yet, despite that wonderful opportunity for marketing, it's all gone to pot because this season will be remembered primarily for crowd troubles. And that's not nice. We love fans, we love passionate fans, we love fans who love to get involved, but this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to get involved. And it's just so disappointing to see once again. I don't know what the answer is. Actually, no, sorry. I do know what the answer is. I don't know why I said I didn't. Because the answer's obvious. Nice got a one-point deduction. Clearly, that's not enough. Give them five points. Give them six points. Give them whatever will make them stop. Make the fans realise that they are hurting their own team. And that's when they'll stop. Fines aren't cutting it. One-point deductions clearly aren't cutting it. Lee needs to figure out how to fix this and fast. And I, I think the only way is through heavy points deductions. There's one more story I want to mention before I finish the podcast off today. And I'm going to have to do a bit of a 180 because that was an angry story before with the Leon Marseille game. And this is a really touching story. We're going to talk about Kevin Sinfield again and obviously Kevin Sinfield when he was a player he was my favourite Leeds Rhino. I'm a Leeds Rhino's fan and the reason he was my favourite player was because he exemplified leadership, he exemplified everything you want a player to be hardworking, dedicated, committed. Every positive word you want to find you could apply to Kevin Sinfield and since he has finished he has continued to be that way. Obviously you'll know that Rob Burrow has motor neurone disease, I and mean, that it's been really devastating to watch, like, what's happened. He keeps a positive attitude, though, and that's the main thing, and it helps that the Leeds Rhinos and players past and present have really rallied around Borough to help him and to raise awareness for MND, and not more so than Kevin Sinfield. You might remember last year, he completed the task of running seven marathons in seven days to raise money, that raised a lot of money and um, this time he undertook somehow an even more challenging sort of thing. <laughs> like like seven marathons in seven days was easy, he decided to run 101 miles in 24 hours for an MND charity and he did that somehow and it's so inspiring to watch what he'll do to help his friend and to help progress awareness for MND. He's raised over a million pounds, and I recommend you donate too. It's really touching, and to be honest, I know he wouldn't care in the slightest, but what more does somebody need to do to get a knighthood? Like, Jesus Christ, he's done so much. i have been so many calls for him to get a knighthood as well in the last few days, and he absolutely deserves it, and for those people who didn't watch Kevin Sinfield as a player, you will now be able to understand why he was my favourite and why he sort of... I, I think he's had a really positive effect on my life as a, as a role model from afar, watching him play for the Leeds Rhinos. and Now watching him doing all this for his friend and for awareness for MND, he will be a role model for many more as well. And the final thing I want to mention with regards to this story... Rugby league obviously has a lot of big rivalries on the pitch but off the pitch it very much feels like a big rugby league family and that's the case with the Wigan Warriors. A big rival of Leeds on the pitch but very much part of that rugby league family off it. As a result of what happened with Sinfield's big accomplishment this week they've decided to put up a big sort of tribute to Kevin Sinfield and Rob Burrow at their training centre. And it's a picture of Sinfield hugging Rob Burrow when they were playing, and it says the best teammates care. It's such a lovely fitting tribute, and so much credit needs to go to the Wigan Warriors. The only annoying thing is I now have to like them, which sucks. No, I'm obviously joking. Really, really lovely tribute and credit to them, because it was it was truly lovely. And the message that that Sinfield and Burrow image gives is really the one that I would like to close this podcast on. The best teammate care. And that is all the time we have on this episode of the Sports Blitz. Thank you for listening. The intro and music was provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. We'll be back next week, maybe, to discuss more from the world of sports. Until then, I've been Alex Woodward, and don't just have a good week like the best play in NFL history. Have an immaculate one. Goodbye.